Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Chicago jazz guitarist and gifted educator David Bloom. He talked about his new 2022 CD, Shadow of a Soul, done with Cliff Colnott. He is one of Chicago's most innovative educators that stimulates creativity in people across all disciplines. He has been an accomplished guitarist and flutist performing in Chicago for many years, and he opened the Bloom School of Jazz in 1975. His jazz's language approach incorporates linguistics, philosophy, aesthetics, and music. By listening to jazz masters, Bloom has taken their musical values and developed exercises that demand those sensibilities. David is a fascinating cat. Enjoy this interview. Hey, thank you for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for uh, being interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Shadow of a Soul, and before we get into the album, I want to know how you did through COVID. How did you survive that two-year period primarily now that we're kind of coming out of it and how did it change you covid was i would say it was the most creative part of my life ever during covid i was working on four different albums the 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 uh, record uh, shadow of the soul and the the cd that came out right after it called uh, mirage those tunes uh, with the exceptions four of them that were recorded afterwards were recorded between June 18th and June 26th of last year. So we did 30 tunes, you know, and as you can hear, extensive production on many of them. Uh, so that that was great. Those and then I also am working on uh, that will be released probably in another three weeks uh, an acapella vocal. Group, one of my students who's 82. Um, can you hear me? Absolutely, I can. Yeah, it's great. No, sometimes I re sometimes I realize I'm doing a soliloquy because of the connection. <laughs> yeah, I get it. So I just wanted to make sure. So sure, anyway, sure. Uh, we have Take Six also uh, doing one song on this new uh, acapella CD. And then I have a woman named Jewel Tansy, uh, and I'm doing. Uh, we just we just finished a CD that uh, is not released yet, but we got it back from the printers, and we're doing a lot of PR and stuff. But anyway, uh, so I've been you know real busy, and you know also I've written a couple books during the time I released a book called uh, uh, What Is Soul a couple years ago, and. Uh, a little book called Before and Aphorisms. It's a little three-inch by three-inch book of just little aphorisms that I've, I've thought up over the from the last you know fifty years. So it's been, uh, I mean, it's been kind of weird in terms of uh, you know not being able to really see people too much. But what I would do is I'd ride my bike usually an hour and a half a day, and I would write you know a section to tunes and then either finish them or have them be interludes. Uh, as you can tell on that Shadow of a Soul record, there's several interludes that are almost kind of like audio palate cleansers. Um, they just kind of set you up for the next tune. And I, I feel pretty proud about the order of the tunes, the tunes and the moods, the tempi. Uh, I think it works, uh, you know, the way, I, the way I had hoped it would. And people comment, people have heard it, uh, <coughs> excuse me, comment on how much they enjoy the flow 
from one tune to the next. So I think I was, you know, successful in the order of the tunes as well as the length. You know, most of the tunes on that album, a CD actually, are under, you know, four minutes. And a few are, you know, in the five to six minutes. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I really very much believe in just getting to the point and get out and don't have, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, a musical filibuster. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. and a, lot of, a lot of jazz players just play on and on and on, and it's so self-celebratory. And the real great know not only how to start the solo, but they know how to end it. And why? Well, you know, as someone that curates a jazz show, I appreciate that. Um, because yeah. I like to get as many songs on my show as possible. Now, when I'm live, you know, there's there's solos and there's things like that going on. I get it. But I think in recorded music, it's like you say, I love that philosophy. Um, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but what was it about this time period? Did you never have the opportunity to slow yeah, down like you did? Hold a hold go ahead. My TV just turned on. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, good. No, it's off now. So, so I don't want to be presumptuous, but, you know, was it because of the slowing down of COVID you didn't have a chance to slow down like that before? What was the whole impetus behind the the burst of creativity? Well, that's a very kind of complicated question because then you have to start talking about, you know, what is the, uh, you know, genesis of, of a creative impulse. That's, that's tough. It's a tough one. But uh, my, my good friend and producer slash arranger often would just call me up because he was really, really going crazy because he, would, he, he just stayed in. He didn't go out on a bike or anything. So he'd call me up and he'd say, will you please send me some, even if it's eight bars? You know, so, I mean, I'm not saying I just did it for him, but in a way, you know, some of those I, I wrote because, uh, uh, you know, he asked me to write, write and send him something. And, you know, I feel, I feel pretty good about what I ended up sending him. Along with recording and writing, you got a pretty notable school. Talk to me about your school. I started the school. I started actually teaching when I got back from Berkeley uh, School of Music in '71, and I started teaching in '72. So it's basically I've been teaching now for 50 years. But I started my uh, my Bloom School of Jazz in 1975 uh, in kind of an entertainment district, uh, a street called Rust Street, on the near north side of Chicago, right across from a very famous. Uh, uh, club called Mr. Kelly's. There are many, uh, records that were recorded there. Um, so I, I started the school in 75 and in 79, 75, uh, we were just doing ear training courses and private lessons till 79. And then I started doing some little combos on Sundays and, uh, the response was so great. We I started putting these combos in the uh, curriculum, and I've been doing them, you know, since 79. Uh, long time. Talk to me a little bit about how this journey in jazz began for you. Back in your childhood, you know, what were some influences? What was your childhood like? How did you? How did it make you want to be who you are today? Well, when I when I was uh, 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 nine years old, my family went out to uh, to Palo Alto 
we were there for a year. My dad was uh, at the Center for the Advanced Study of Behavioral Science. Uh, he's a anyone in education knows of Benjamin Bloom. He wrote a he wrote Bloom's Taxonomy of Educational Objectives that sold millions of copies. And so, anytime I meet someone anywhere in the world who is in in education, and I mentioned Benjamin Bloom, they all mention that book. Uh, so we were out there, and I started I started playing. Uh, oh, before we went out there, my mother set up some lessons with the first chair clarinetist of Chicago Symphony, a guy named Jerome Stoll, and he wasn't very he wasn't a very uh, uh, friendly person. In fact, he was just super harsh. And I was like eight years old, so that didn't work out. And then when we when I went to California, we found a guitar teacher uh, named Mrs. Schneiderman, and she uh, taught me folk music. You know, so I just started guitar. And then when I got back to Chicago, you know, I continued just playing guitar and singing folk songs with my brother. Back in that period. In the uh, 50s and 60s, folk music was really huge. You know, Pete Seeger and all these, you know, different uh, Gibson and Camp and uh, the Clancy Brothers, et cetera, et cetera, Peter, Paul, and Mary. So, uh, you know, we would play, but when we got back from California in 60, uh, across the street, I heard some just incredible music. It was actually Herbie Mann live at the village gate doing coming home baby and back in back in those days you just yell up you know there was there people were just absurdly more relaxed you know like for example on a saturday night you'd go to like four parties and the only thing when you walk in the door people would say beers in the back you know you didn't you didn't need like special identification to get into a party and then at, at one in the morning you'd come back to the party that, you know, you like the most and stay till four or five. So a very different period. So uh, anyway, so uh, the guy uh, was named Jerry, uh, Jerry Fentress, and he uh, invited me to come up and just played, you know, you know, played a bunch of jazz for me, and I was just com- just completely hooked on it. I just loved it. I didn't really feel I could play it. But I did, uh, I, I loved the music, and I fell in love with Wes Montgomery and later on had a chance to see him four times at the Lighthouse out in California. I saw him twice and at the Plug Nickel in Chicago. And I asked him to play one of my favorite tunes, and he said, we don't play it anymore, the tune, the tune jingles. And so anyway, uh, then I, uh, so... I wasn't playing any jazz until, you know, the late, the late uh, 60s. Uh, I went, I, I, I went on a little uh, tour with a blues guy named Chicago Slim. And uh, we went down to Texas. And when the owner of the club saw that we had two black guys in the band, he paid us and, for two weeks and we came back to Chicago. It was unbelievable. That was in 1968. Um, so, uh, and then, then uh, I went to Berkeley for a couple of years. You know, further, I, I had started playing flute at the end of the 60s. So I was playing flute and guitar. And then I went to Berkeley. And when I got back from Berkeley, 
I started a band right away in 72 with just top players who were all better than I was. But the thing they liked about, you know, being in my band was they liked my original tunes that were not, you know, pretentious. They were very, they were, uh, uh, uh improviser friendly tunes. Um, and I've never understood why people, you know, on a one night gig bring tunes that people can't play. Or if they can play, it, it sounds like school because they're not relaxed enough with the chord changes to be able to freely express themselves. Never understood that. I thought it was just insane, you know, to present music that uh, is going to sound very academic at best. Why do that, you know? But anyway, that's just me. You know, I started a, my first jazz band in 72, a place called uh, Lake Meadows Restaurant. And I, I had my bands until 1981. And then I, I just stopped playing out uh, for, for numerous reasons, one of which was I, the last band that I had, I had two junkies in. One almost died. And I just got real tired of, I mean, it's one thing to battle club owners, but it's another thing to battle musicians, you know, coming in late, et cetera, being high, you know, not having to go find them after the break. I mean, one, the gig, the last gig I had was, I uh, started at 10 until 3.30 in the morning uh, during the weeknights, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday and then Saturday it went till four thirty. You know, so the, the the very different than now. I mean, most bands now feel they're put upon if they have to do more than two sets. You know, we're doing five sets um, or six. Okay? Uh, and then since then, you know, I've just had the school. I've written a lot of music. I write essays. I have a book. I think I mentioned called "What Is Soul." Uh, so I like to, I like to write, uh, I'm a fairly curious person and I like to, uh, express, you know, what I think. And I think it was, the reason I started school, cause I, I, I remember in about 70, I went for a walk with my dad in 71 when I got back and I said, what should I do? And he said, well, why don't you think about opening a school up? And I said, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so, so I, because I, I was teaching about 30 students in Hyde Park, uh, where I'm from, 30 students a week. And then a friend of mine gave up his place on Rush Street right across from the uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Kelly's, and uh, I rented it, and that was that. You know, I'm curious, with your life as both a musician and an educator, what is it that you look forward to the most every day? What is it about this process? that you love the most? Well, I come from a family of teachers, and I would say pretty much the a, a huge part of the way I judge myself is on the positive effect I can have on others. So when, I, when I'm, like today, I have a combo later and a couple of privates, I look forward to teaching. I mean, it's not, a, I don't, I mean, I've been teaching 50 years, and I don't feel it's an imposition at all. I look forward to it because I look forward to opportunities to create high value for other people. So that's pretty much, you know, what what's important to me. Now, on the other hand, 
my own creativity is very important to me too. You know, whether whether it's working on uh, you know composing or my playing, I also paint. So I have I have different creative outlets that uh, make life tolerable. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I I totally get it. So let me let me ask you this: If you have a dream tonight and you run into the younger version of yourself, say in your twenties, and you can dispense you know advice based on the wisdom that you've gained over all of these years, what would you tell your young version? I would say another way to to frame the question is: Do I have regrets? And I would say there's only very few regrets. One regret I have is given that my father was a professor at the University of Chicago, it meant that I could have tuition paid for anywhere in the country up to the level of UFC, which was second only to Harvard. So basically anywhere in the country. And if I had gone to Harvard, you know, uh, it, it was pretty close. So it would have been, I, my parents could have afforded that. Um, so I'd say the, the my biggest regret is that I pissed, I pissed away, you know, a lot of potential education that I could have had because I was very rebellious. And it was kind of the, uh, the shoemaker's kid story, you know, that my dad was a super high level world renowned educator. And, you know, I really wasn't, I really was, I mean, I, I practiced all day long when I was at Berkeley School of Music, but I cut I cut a lot of classes, and I just wasn't into kind of formal education. So that that's really one of my big regrets. I mean, I've started a lot of doing a lot of writing, you know, essays, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I I I can see sometimes my my writing's improved greatly in the last twenty years. It started off just ranting about things I didn't like, and then the Tribune asked me to write a book review. And I said, well, I'm not really a writer. And then the the guy who asked me to do it did it because he wanted me to review Studs Terkel, Giants of Jazz book. It <clears throat> was being re-released, <clears throat> excuse me, from uh, 1957 was the original. So I wrote it, and he said that he'd be happy to edit it and massage it. And then about a year later, he asked me to, to uh, do a book review on Larry Cart's Jazz in Search of Itself. So for this one, I was trying to do like a, a you know a long article, you know, a la you know Harper's. So I wrote 3,200 words and then you know cut it down to 900 for the uh, for the Chicago Tribune. So I mean those two those two writing assignments basically uh, you know, made me into uh, a freelance writer. I mean if you if you're published in a ba- major newspaper in the country and paid, you know, basically you're a freelance writer. So I've, I've really enjoyed, I haven't sent out enough of my stuff to newspapers because one of my big problems is that I have a huge joy of creativity. I mean, I love it, but I'm really, uh, one could call it hubris or whatever, whatever one wants to call it, but I've never been, big into marketing i mean when i was when i was uh, 17 i saw buddy guy at the uh at the uh, folk festival ufc and i called him up the next day and asked him if he'd teach me 
and he said he'd never taught anybody. But you know, I convinced him that uh, to to take me on, and and I said, what would it cost? And he said about five bucks. And I said, for how long? He says, as long as it takes. And so, so it was a that was a really ex- very sweet period. You know, taking the the train over to his house, and he was just. I mean, there's something to say about Southern hospitality, you know, people who not only make make you feel like it's okay that you're there, but for, you know, the, the, the Southern hospitality makes you feel like it's necessary that you're there. And that's, yeah. my mother would that, you know, just making people feel like it's important you're here, not it's okay, you know, that you're here. I've tried to think about that a lot just in terms of my dealings with people you know, because if you you can draw the best out of people if you make them feel like they're important, you know, rather than Absolutely. like an ex- rather than an extra in your life. Everyone out there has a perception of you: your family, your friends, your students, your fans. But ultimately, you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Great question, by the way. Thank you. Uh, who I who I think I am? I think I think for me, and maybe this is incorrect, but for me. Uh, one of my one of my aphorisms in my little book is, is behavior is truth. So for me, I take a look at what I do, and what I do is I empower you know thousands and thousands of musicians to express themselves. I've been doing that you know for fifty years, and so that again, getting back to what I said, I think I'm a person who I can be a, a very very harsh. In terms of my, for example, my musical taste, I really don't take any prisoners. So uh, if I feel people are just fucking around and they're just not really telling a musical story and they're just showing us some diminished licks or something they've just, you know, and it's just reiteration and not creativity, you know, I can be very harsh. And I really, a lot of, a lot of people get annoyed with me because they see me come into a club and then to 15 minutes later, I leave. You know, I just I'm, I have no interest in wasting my time if someone really doesn't, in my opinion, have a sincere interest in telling musical stories. And basically, it's just practicing, you know, on the bandstand. David, this has been fascinating. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for giving me a kind of a portrait of what you're doing and where you're going and in your school and your life. I really appreciate it. For sure. Well, yeah, I have a few things to say about the record. And uh, I think I said one is that I was really trying to go for a, a very wide kaleidoscopic, you know, view of grooves, of grooves, you know, colors and musical stories. And I think I was successful with that. Uh, the Shadow of the Soul tune, where I'm playing alto flute on it. Um, by the way, uh, that's also, uh, you can see a very nice video of that you know, on uh, YouTube. Um, and also the salsa tune that I wrote for Eddie Palmieri. Um, so I, I would say with the shadow of the soul, what I was trying to get to was an appreciation of all the super soulful people I've met in my life who, who all seemed to cast a shadow. You know, that was just, there was a certain richness in their presence, you know, versus people who didn't cast a shadow. You know, who just like uh, in like a, a you know a soap ad. You know, there's no shadows. Um, 
so anyway, that and the, uh, you know, so with that, uh, I wrote the A section of that in 1975, and I wrote the bridge in uh, uh, two years ago, 2020. Um, and the uh, I'm really happy with that tune, how it came out. Because we have uh, an oboe playing the bridge, and I'm playing alto flute on the A section, and uh, and I thought the woman just did did an incredible job. Um, so, yeah, I would say the main thing I feel about the record is it's got extremely high production values. Really, really good players, you know, good solos, uh, very good arrangements uh, that Cliff Colnett wrote most of, and I wrote. The we, we actually co-wrote a couple of them. The for Eddie P, um, that has like 24 musicians on it, 14 strings, five horns, and five rhythms. Um, yeah, so so uh, yeah, I'm 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 real pleased with the CD. It, it does what I what I was trying to do. And uh, a wonderful listen. I can't wait to get it out to the people out there. So thank you again for taking time out. Good luck with this album and everything as we move forward. Thank you very much. I appreciate your interest. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Chicago, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to David for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.